My guest today has not one but two companies, one of which is a nonprofit and one of it of which is a for-profit. And in our interview today, Audra takes us through how she brought a little bit of business into her nonprofit and a little bit of the social for good into her profit to create not one but two thriving companies. Today, my guest is Audra Renyi. She is the executive director of Worldwide Hearing and the founder of Ear Access Incorporated. She has worked as an investment banker on Wall Street dealing with private equity firms. Ms. Renyi has also worked with Doctors Without Borders in Chad, Rwanda, and has served as the CFO of the One Acre Fund. In Kenya, she worked as a business consultant in microfinance, and she worked as director of development at Canada World Youth. Ms. Renyi holds bachelor degrees in economics from the Wharton School and international studies from the University of Pennsylvania. She has completed an executive leadership program at Harvard Business School as well. She is the winner of the 2017 Governor General's Innovation Award, was named a heroine of health at the WHO World Health Assembly, and in 2020 received the CANIE Women Entrepreneur Award. She also was the recipient of funding through SHEEO, and today's interview is fantastic. Welcome to The Road to Seven. I'm your host, Sheila Cummins. I am an entrepreneur, a mentor, an investor, a wife, and mom to three beautiful children. Women entrepreneurs are up-leveling and changing the rules for business strategy, leadership, success, money, and impacting the world every single day. The Road to Seven is the diary of business strategy for women entrepreneurs. We meet you where you're at in your business and champion you along the road to your vision. And I am honored you chose to join us today. Ready to go? Buckle up. It's time to hit the road. I'm excited to share with you our guest today, Audra Renyi. She has both a nonprofit and a for-profit part to her company. And I think it's such a great journey, journey to be sharing with you. Audra, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you, Sheila. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Tell us, you know, I know you launched your nonprofit first, Worldwide Hearing. How did you come to this sort of calling of helping people with their hearing? And tell us a little bit about how you got to that, the first launch of the nonprofit. Hearing loss is a very personal cause to me. Uh, My father and my aunt, uh, when they were nine and seven, grew up in Romania, and they had an ear infection, which led to permanent severe hearing loss. And they had been wearing hearing aids for decades. So it was something that was close to my heart. But what I hadn't realized until I met our founding chairman, Audi Busandri, who founded the Worldwide Hearing Foundations, is how big the problem was. It's 1.5 billion people with hearing loss, 80% of them in lower middle-income countries, and and fewer than 10% who have access to hearing aids and, and hearing care. I just couldn't believe the numbers. I just thought it was something that was very isolated in my family. And I had seen firsthand the repercussions it had on my, my father and my edge. But when I realized there were, there were so many children as well who didn't have access to these hearing aids because they were prohibitively expensive at an average of $2,500 a unit when they cost as little as $50 to manufacture 
and, and the lack of people to fit them. In places like Guatemala, there's only one audiologist for the whole country. This just, I, I, I found that this was, there was a big disconnect in terms of the need and the number of people who really had access. So that's, that's what inspired me to start as executive director of Worldwide Hearing which, as I mentioned, was, was founded by a chairman and uh, helped grow the organization over the past 10 years. And in that process, around year five, one of the things we realized as we were developing our programs to provide affordable hearing aids and training mostly women on the ground to provide these hearing aids is that as we were scaling, the biggest ceiling or barrier was the access, lack of access to grant capital to keep scaling. So at some point, there was an opportunity to say, well, what if we created a separate entity, you know, legally separate entity that took a different approach, a for-profit approach, but but really serving the underserved and the sort of that lower mid-market, whereas the non-profit focuses on the forest of the poor and, and mainly children. The for-profit year access, which I founded, has a goal to provide these hearing aids sustainably so that as we're uh, generating revenue, we're able also to access different types of capital to scale the business. But ultimately, the, the objective is all part of a bigger picture is to serve the underserved and just to do so with using different approaches, but to do so sustainably. So that's that's been our journey now for been 10 years and for me, it's it's just a it's a personal passion. Hearing loss is is to make more people not just have access, but to be more aware of how disabling hearing loss can be and how important it is to have access to medical devices and to hearing care. Oh, that's amazing. What's interesting is your background is not as an audiologist either. How did your background lead you to this space of being both the executive director and founding Ear Access? So, so I'm definitely I'm not an audiologist. My background is in finance and business. I uh, started my career as an investment banker in New York. Went to left to go volunteer in Africa for two years in Rwanda, Chad, Kenya, working with microfinance agencies, working with doctors without borders, and so that's also where I found my passion really for 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 health and for helping others. And so when I came back to Canada after many years, I. I really realized that what drove me is to help others to have a, a transformative impact on their lives. And what I also found interesting is how business, both, you know, for profits and nonprofits, these are just two different ways to get sometimes to the same goal. And that they, these two worlds can learn a lot from each other. You know, nonprofits can become a lot more efficient and businesslike in the way they think about operations and delivering care. And businesses, I think, have a long way to go in terms of really integrating social impact into the way they do business, not just like as a side project or social impact, but really just as an entity themselves, generating revenue, making profits while doing good. I love that. And I actually want to talk about both pieces of that. So what are some of the, we'll call it business-minded things that you've brought to the nonprofit to make it more efficient and more streamlined? What are some of the changes that you've implemented? So one is data. We're big believers in data, monitoring data, tracking data. That's something that businesses do are very good at looking at KPIs, uh, key performance indicators. And so really building that into the DNA of the nonprofits. Melinda Gates talks about sometimes how we measure nonprofits' efficacy. It's sort of like bowling in the dark. You, you, you do something, you do a project, and then at the end of it, you do this report, and that's when you realize what didn't work or what you had, but it's too late. The project is over. It's too late to change. So. This idea of actually having data in real time that allows you to pivot, to shift, to adapt as you're actually running a project for a nonprofit, I think that's a really important component of making nonprofits, you know, more responsive to people's needs on the ground. And then the second piece is tech. We've developed our own uh, in-house technology 
for example, for teleaudiology at worldwide sharing and the ability to, to, to have that in-house knowledge and to be able to use technology to scale a lot of the work we do is a really important part of our nonprofit. So we sort of, we, we kind of operate like a, like a for-profit startup from that perspective. We're very tech oriented, but ultimately we make our technology open access to any NGOs, anyone who wants to use it around the world because our ultimate goal is, is to serve as many people as possible. Amazing. And I think that that may be a lost art in several nonprofits. They sort of get caught up in the social service and forget about the business part of doing what it is that they do. And then on the flip side, tell us how you've integrated some CSR into ear access so that it is a socially responsible company that is still making money. Inherently, our goal from day one was to drive down the price points for hearing aids so that more, more larger segments of populations in the countries in which we work would have access. And so inherently, what we've done is, is gone from much larger volume, lower margin model. You know, as a business, we've decided that we would go lower margins and, and that itself is inherently a way of, of reaching people who currently couldn't afford. Uh, second piece that we did is we introduced payment plans. So the ability to pay over time, which again, greatly reduces, you know, increases the affordability, if you will, of, of the hearing aids themselves. And, and we took an approach that was not, you know, we didn't go with, with the third party financing firm. We decided to do it in-house and, and take on the, the risk of that to prove out the model. And, and, and so far it's been, it's been amazing how much uh, trust people have and, and how much we're getting, you know, payments retains on time. Without all this kind of complexity that sometimes we tend to want to do in the business world, like it, it just, it's a very simple model, but it works because ultimately people with hearing loss who need a hearing aid and you're the only provider in country that has a portable product, it's in their interest to pay on time and, and to, to receive the ongoing services. So we've sort of, in some ways, taken a nonprofit approach to this financing model and it's, it's working quite well. The third piece I'd say is our children under five program at Ear Access. This is really about early intervention for kids age zero to four, which is when most, a lot of the hearing loss in children occurs either at birth or in the first couple of years, ear infections and other things. And this is exactly the age gap. We don't see a lot of intervention. They usually get tested by you know, either at birth at the hospital or grade one, but there's very little going on in between those critical years. Ear access has been providing free of charge screenings in places like the Philippines and daycares across community centers to be able to identify kids as early as possible and, and get them access to the support they need. And, and that's something that's really important to us as a, as a company. Most for-profit hearing aid companies are focused on older adults in wealthy countries. As our mission and as our DNA, we think it's also really important to think about the kids. And this is not the most revenue generating part of, you know, the, the business for sure. This is that this is part of the social, but this is really fundamentally part of our DNA social impact in parallel to the other work we do. We think this one's really this this one's very close to my heart personally. And, and so we're continuing to grow this program for early intervention. But, you know, even in the long term, I feel like that early intervention is going to create clients for life. Absolutely. And, and what's interesting is that though we didn't set out to make this, you know, most profitable unit and, and that was not our original goal. Our goal is really to intervene. We found increasingly having ourselves having collaborations with governments where we will provide the screening, but they will pay for the hearing aid. So there's really a kind of a public private partnership happening there in a way that is actually making the program very sustainable. So that's, that's been actually a really exciting journey in itself. 
Yeah, that's amazing. So the the concept of microfinancing, I'm really intrigued by that. One of the things we're building here at the Road to Seven is micro lending for women entrepreneurs, knowing that access to capital is incredibly tricky. How did your background in microfinancing? What are some of the pieces that you brought into the financing model that you've integrated into your access? How how did your background sort of feed that concept? So I, I think it really, my background in microfinance really helped me understand and think about this financing piece. I, you know, had experience with group lending, for example, in very rural communities in Kenya. And so it's interesting because I think it, it helped, but it also, I had to re-question my assumptions around microfinance. What we're doing is not necessarily the traditional microfinance approach. It's, it's, it's different because we're financing medical devices and we're not doing it in a group lending kind of structure. So what's actually interesting is that I, I, I got some pushback initially from the, from the microfinance community saying, well, you need these group structures and, and you should think about what happens if somebody doesn't repay. And my hypothesis was, again, we're, we're talking about people with disabilities who, who really need a hearing aid. By the time they get a hearing aid, it's because this is the device. It's not just a, you know, something that you're buying like a set of headphones for fun or listening to music. This is really something that allows you to to live a full life, to live your full potential, to communicate with others and loved ones. And so this idea of doing one-on-one microfinancing, we don't do credit checks, for example. That's something that we don't do, which is sort of also in line with the microfinance. The idea is to really bank the unbankable or the unbanked, if you will. And so we're not targeting people who already have credit cards and these kind of things. We're really going for people who otherwise would not have access to these financing services. So that that's very similar to microfinance, where we Right now in our structure, we're really doing one-to-one lending, if you will, or financing. And as we're scaling that, we're, we're doing a lot of learning. But the richness of my experience with microfinance, understanding what has worked, what hasn't worked so well, has been very helpful in putting this program together. That's amazing. Oh, I think it's just such a neat, it's such a neat validation for that whole concept. And I think, you know, one of the things that drives us is, all the data shows the benefit of microfinancing. It's it's a resounding positivity across the board. What have been some of your biggest struggles with launching either the nonprofit and or your access? I think the biggest challenges have come from the fact that this is an industry where there hasn't been a lot of non-traditional approaches that the typical way of selling hearing aids, for example, has been through clinics and audiologists. And so as as innovators and disruptors, if you will, a little bit of that model where we want to bring in more affordable product. We hit a wall sometimes of of resistance, if you will, because the incentives currently set up in the way that the clinics are selling, which is a lower volume, higher margin model, really didn't didn't match with this higher volume, lower margin model that we had. So we really, I think a challenge was initially hitting some of these roadblocks and having to be really creative to just work around them and find other strategies. And so what we did and what did over time is really look at developing alternative distribution networks, uh, creating our own distribution networks, which don't compete actually with the existing clinics. Our goal is not to, you know, to take their market share. Our goal is actually to grow the market in a way that creates demand in, in, in places where before they just 
to people that wouldn't have bought hearing aids otherwise. And if you want to expand the pie as opposed to as opposed to working against these clinics, we really we collaborate a lot with audiologists. And so I think once we realize that there is this alternative way, this alternative path of working, for example, through pharmacies and other kinds of existing but non-traditional hearing aid distribution, that's when the company really took off. But you really have to be persevered. You have to keep trying. I think the the key is to pivot as quickly as possible when you're Business plan version A is not working out. You quickly pivot to version B and C, and eventually you get to your path to market. But I always tell entrepreneurs, don't don't do what we did in the very early days, which is wait a little too long, just hoping it's going to work out. And you know you're very kind of invested in that first business plan. As soon as you think see things that are not working out the way you want, you you, you adapt, you pivot, and we've become very good at that at doing that quite quickly. And uh, having that that growth mindset and not not being too enamored of your original plan and just kind of going for whatever works. I love it. The fluid business plan. Correct. Yeah, I love it. You received some funding through CEO last year. You were one of the lucky winners. What did you do with the money? How did you how did you use your loan? Yeah, so we've, that's been, uh, you know, very, very tremendous support from Shio, um, not just in terms of funding, but in terms of support from that community, uh, mentoring, coaching. It's been a, it's been a wonderful journey so far. And the funds were used to fund our working capital in the Philippines, which is one of our key countries of operations where we've been scaling fast. And a uh, part of the scaling is to expand within, within the capital of Manila, but also started to expand to remote regions. We did an online shift. So uh, shifting to digital to be able to fit test for hearing loss and fit hearing aids remotely. So the funding was critical to really help with both that transition and 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 the scaling within the country. Wow. So was that shift but partly COVID and also partly increasing the accessibility? What was the motivator behind that? Correct. The shifting to digital and, and online had been part of our roadmap for a while, but COVID really accelerated that. And so it became, uh, you know, we need to do this fast because there was a point at the beginning of the pandemic where basically clinics all over the world, the audiology shut down for a few months, sales came to a halt. So we had to look at alternative ways of getting these products to people who, who still needed them and but they just couldn't leave their home or they couldn't get to the clinics. And so that certainly accelerated the shift. But once we were down that path, it was very exciting because, you know, it, it opened up a whole new world and which, which funding from CEO, we were able to, to expand, to grow and to really invest in digital marketing and, and, and grow that sector. Wow. And how do you choose which countries you're going to be scaling in? How did you choose the Philippines? It, it's a series of things we look at. For example, we, when we look at the size of the market, we look at the need. Southeast Asia actually has some of the highest rates of hearing loss in the world. That's certainly one factor. What would be contributing to that? No one knows exactly that even the, the World Health Organization is not 100% sure, but there, there tends to be, for example, like certainly in the Philippines, there are still Issues, for example, that the children developing hearing loss due to uh, measles, mumps, rubella, that's one of the causes, you know, the, the, the lower rates in vaccination for kids for certain types of things. We still see autotoxicity for certain drugs like TB drugs. Uh, some of them are actually create, can, can lead to hearing loss. So these kind of things that happen in earlier childhood. The rest, we don't know exactly uh, what happens uh, to adults, why, why they're more than other places that Researchers are still trying to figure that one out, but the rates are high. Why is, you know, 17% uh, according to some studies. And so that was one factor. Another factor we also look for is the ability to train technicians in country. So some countries have, despite only having 10 audiologists in country, have regulatory barriers that make it very hard to train audio technicians to be able to do some of the work that the audiologists do. So we look for countries that allow a certain level of flexibility 
where essentially we can we can train. We have a proprietary tr- program to train these technicians to be able to do the uh, basic hearing tests and hearing aid fittings and refer complex cases to our audiologists where mm-hmm. you have audiologists on staff. So these are some of the factors that we look at ease of importing hearing aids, you know, other regulatory questions. And then I would say, the, you know, often when we work in partnership with local partners, one of the dividing factors is their openness to innovation. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really want to, you know, and, and their alignment with our mission. People would deeply believe in the social part of what we do. And of course, you know, we're a for-profit with your access. It's important to, to generate revenue and profit. But ultimately, we really want to, I really want to work. And that's why I created this company with people who also care. Right. Yeah. And then when we have to make decisions between sometimes different distributors, that's certainly one of the, one of the aspects we look at is, is ultimately, you know, how aligned is this person? really make a difference in their country and in the, the lives of people with hearing loss. Amazing. I'm curious, just as an aside, you're running two companies. You've got a nonprofit, you've got a for-profit. How do you balance your work weeks? How do you balance both? <laughs> yeah, just add a two and a half year old toddler in the mix. <laughs> okay. So you got all, you got all kind of bases covered right now. So how are you, yeah. how do you manage the mix? How do you make it through your work week? Ultimately, it comes down to having a great you can't do it all. There's always so many hours in the week. It's really about empowering your staff to be able themselves operate like entrepreneurs and, and make decisions and move quickly. And so we have a pretty, um, I would say decentralized structure where people are empowered to, to move forward and, and to make decisions and, 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 and to, and to grow. So I think in terms, and that's certainly the culture that we built in both organizations, but you know, I'm not going to hide the fact that it's, it's, it can be long hours sometimes. Yeah, and it's, sure. Uh, but, but it's really about, it's really about the team. We have a, you know, a, most of my success is, is really due to other people and, and, and finding the right people to do what they do. And, and it's, it's when you have the right people, you know, it becomes a very low touch kind of management system. Yes. You know, not to take the credit away from you. And that's the heart of leadership, right? Right there. That is an example of powerful leadership. Two questions before I let you go, Audra. Number one, what do you know now that you wished you knew when you started? That it's all going to be okay. No matter what happens, the ups or downs, you know, it's, it's, it's all okay. And you can manage through anything, you know, like all entrepreneurs and companies and organizations you have, but you need sometimes in the early years, you know, you're, you're really, you have cash flow crunches. You have, you know, you're running into roadblocks in terms of your, your, your operations, your, your plan. And once you've been through that a couple of times, you know, it just nothing seems like it's such a big problem. It's just something else you're going to get through. And I think if, if it was, able to talk to my former self and say, you know, this is just one more of these moments and, and you're going to get through it. And, and the sort of eternal optimism that I think you really need to have as an entrepreneur, otherwise it's very hard to survive as an entrepreneur. But I think that that sort of, that sort of calmness in the face of the storm and, and that also just comes with experience. So it's very hard to, to, to have that from day one. I think that that comes with experience. Mm-hmm. I love it. And what's next? What's next for worldwide hearing? What's next for ear access? Well, our big goal in general is to reach the 1 million people served. That's really our goal. We've reached in the hundreds of thousands, but we're really aiming for that big goal. I would say looking at the next five years, that's, that's where we went ahead and, and really start making a dent in, in this issue. Another personal goal in all of this is to just raise the awareness around hearing loss around the world and start talking, you know, start, start talking at the policy level, even, you know, a, 
Canada, there's a lot to be done still in, in terms of hearing loss. And around the world, starting, you know, increasingly working with worldwide hearing uh, on the policy side and creating, you know, scalable programs, uh, for example, for training of technicians in country, increasingly starting to talk to governments about they, how they can scale. Because we can only do so much. You know, proud of our efforts and what we do and it's scaling. But, but really, if you want to scale a big way and you want to have big change, you have to do it in partnership. And that, that includes private sector, that includes governments. That's when you can start seeing the really big change. And so that's what I'm really excited about. The next step is, is how do we have that really long term impact? Amazing. Amazing. Audra, thank you so much for sharing today. I think you've given us so many golden nuggets, you know, not only just about how to make your nonprofit more efficient and more businessy, but also how to make your business more socially responsible and support more people. Thank you so much for today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Road to Seven. If you found value in what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star rating and a written review. You might just get a shout out on an upcoming episode and you never know when I'm going to be mailing some surprise treats to our reviewers. Make sure to subscribe so you automatically get notified when new episodes are released. Are you looking for a way to connect with other entrepreneurs that are facing the same challenges as you? I'd love to connect with you in the Road to 7 Facebook group on Instagram and LinkedIn. Just head to SheilaCummins.com. You will find all the links that you need right there. Together, we'll explore more ways to support your shift into action so that you can grow your business to finally match your vision. I love aligning your vision of success with strategic and intentional actions because that is how we will grow your business to match your vision. I focus on women, all women, because women hold the keys and the power to creating a powerful and positive world through their impact. We'll see you on the next episode.